speaking about uh, spiritual leadership, there are some wonderful resources that you can actually give a little substance and meaning uh, beyond just gift giving at the holidays. Um, and there, we have uh, created a, a kind of a nice little flyer for you uh, just to help explain, not only to you, if, if maybe you need some clarification, we'd like to think that Advent is more than just uh, one of those churchy traditions, but there's a way to cultivate a living faith. Mission Hills is about a living faith. That's why we have seven rhythms that we can practice together and express faith outside of just our gathering together. But uh, I would encourage you to pick this up. I even found um, there's Henry Nowen uh, has a great daily scripture and prayer. It's available on Amazon Prime. You could sit here tonight and have that ordered and have it at your house tomorrow. It's a great way to go through Christmas in a very succinct way, but to have a daily thought to keep you centered on not just the Christ child, but the second coming, which is what Christmas is all about. It also, I included some notes in here about um, setting up your own wreath at home. If you are able to have family dinners, whether just as a couple uh, or with kids, um, I, I would encourage you to just piece together an Advent candle of some sort, uh, uh, excuse me, an Advent wreath, and, and you can kind of explain it in your own terms, but I just think that's a meaningful way. I have these kind of fond memories of going through uh, some, I, I just like lighting things. So when my mom put candles and, and matches in front of us, that just made Christmas even better. Uh, but I remember family dinners were a big deal and having an advent wreath around our kitchen table was, uh, was, was a neat expression for us. So, um, I remember in, in a former life, uh, when I was a youth pastor, you did, you did dumb things. Uh, and um, one of those dumb things was you pulled all-nighters uh, because you thought kids liked that. Uh, your volunteer staff never seemed to appreciate it too much. I remember going to an all-nighter. We were living in San Diego, and we were driving up to Knott's Berry Farm, which they had an all-nighter with like you know, 10 Christian bands playing. And so uh, I was driving the church bus, which had about 50 passengers on it. Uh, and Laura was driving the church shuttle, which was a 25 passenger shuttle bus. We're going up I-5 from San Diego to this amusement park for the night of, of bands and, and, and roller coasters. And it's, did I mention it's New Year's Eve? And <laughs> I get to about South Orange County, Mission Viejo area, and I hear this huge kind of explosion. I didn't know what it was. I thought I blew out a tire on a, a, a bus, you know, a 50-passenger school bus. Um, that's not something you practice. But I didn't lose control of it. I just lost power. And like while I'm in the third out of four lanes, I just start gliding over. Laurel sees me and just starts going over and trying to like clear space because she doesn't know what I'm doing. I just know I need to get to the off ramp. And uh, I just coast to a stop. There's a service station. Let me just put this in frame. This was back in 1995, 96, pre-cell phone era. What did you do uh, except yell louder? Uh, and... And so um, she kind of pushes me with the shuttle bus so that we could get to this gas station. And here we are, New Year's Eve. Oh, it's about 8.30. We're supposed to get to this amusement park. We've got 75 kids kind of near the side of the highway. What are we going to do? 
except we start going through yellow pages. Yellow pages were those things, they were thick yellow books that you could go through and find lots of information. It was sort of the predecessor to the internet. Uh, gosh, I haven't thought about these things. Someone said Y2K recently. I go, what does that even stand for? Uh, and I was like, oh yes, yes, the hype. Nevertheless, I digress. Back to the story, long short of it was, uh, Laurel happened to call the public trans uh, transit system there in Orange County. We were still about an hour away. I don't know what got into this person. They work for the government. They're not supposed to be, or usually, typically very helpful, but they were incredibly gracious, incredibly hospitable. We kind of pitched our whole story. Next thing you know, they, they sent out um, one of their transit buses, a public muni bus, to Mission Viejo and took us the rest of the way to Knott's Berry Farm, dropped us off. Not only that, but we got a number from the operator, the dispatcher, who says, I've got a friend who has a private company, coach company, and if you call, they won't gouge, but if you call, they'll take you back to San Diego in the morning. For what it would cost, instead of stopping at Denny's for breakfast on the way home, I just said, guys, we broke the budget tonight. I need to rent a charter bus. And they're like, let's just go home. No price gouging, no taking advantage. It's a holiday moment. We're desperate. And people just fell into place. I, when, when, when does customer service happen through the US government, through county services, through city, city? Have you been to the DMV and be, been welcomed like you walked into Walmart? No, except there is this unusual demonstration of hospitality. And hospitality is one of those things that largely feels disruptive to our lives, does it not? For those of you who are full-time grandparents, you're like, amen. I mean, did I say that out loud? <laughs> For those of you who have been hosting people for this holiday weekend, you're like, oh my gosh, hospitality is amazing. It's also really disruptive. It requires a lot of work. And maybe that's the point, is that when we extend ourselves in grace, in hospitality, there's something that not only we're able to give, but there's something that happens in us that God wants to do. Do you think that it was just me on that New Year's night, or me and Laurel, that on that New Year's night in charge of 75 high school students that was just on the winning end? Or were lives being enriched because they actually met a need? See, I want to talk about hospitality tonight in some maybe less than usual ways as we introduce part of this, this uh, Christmas story. And we're going to go through some different parts of it over the next few weeks. But hospitality feels disruptive. It feels inconvenient. And the Christian life actually should feel disruptive. It should feel somewhat inconvenient. If it doesn't, I'm not sure we actually are living or believing into what the gospel really says. And so the receptivity we have to the, to the disruption of Christ in our life can lead to a life of gratitude, can lead to a life of justice, of humility, and greater levels of love. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn with me or open up your app to Luke chapter 1. 
It's a large passage. I didn't include much of it in the slides tonight. I'm just going to reference a few scriptures, but maybe there's a seat uh, Bible uh, in the pew rack in front of you. But I just want to kind of draw yourself, just leave it open as we look at this larger passage. But just for starters, I want to read um, Luke 26, 1, 26 through 33. And I want to look at three prototypes out of Luke chapter 1. What do I mean when I say the word prototypes? Prototypes are examples of. They are, they are the perfect examples of. I want to look at the prototype of Mary. I want to look at the prototype of Elizabeth. And I want to look at the prototype of Zechariah. Now, you might not have ever th thought of these people as prototypical people. But Mary is the prototype of what it means to have Christ in us. Elizabeth is a prototype of hospitality, specifically showing shelter to someone, in this case Mary, who's on the run or sitting at the, expense, at the risk of being marginalized. And Zechariah is a prototype, hear me on this, because this is where it gets really personal, of someone who knows what scripture says but struggles to believe it who knows what the word of God says, but when push comes to shove, when circumstances gets real, doesn't always feel like they can trust it. So let's first look at Luke 20, oh, chapter 1, verse 26, and it says this. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at, the, at his words and, and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found great favor with God and you will be with child and give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord, will, the Lord God will give him the throne of the father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His name will never or his reign will never end. This is a really significant way and, and I don't want you to lose the impact of who Mary is in spite of the familiarity of the story. The, the familiarity of the story lends itself, gives it a temptation to go, well, that's Mary's story. That God chose her, not me. And, and, and so there's this way of interpreting or reading this historical account as her story and God choosing her. Except what I'm suggesting to you is that Mary's story is actually our story. And if you find yourself a Christian, understand that Mary is the prototype of Christ in us. Now, is there something unique about, uh, about you know, giving birth to the actual Christ child and yet still being a virgin? Totally, I'm not taking anything away from the virgin birth. But understand what this represents in all of our lives. Uh, is that she's, uh, if, if we let the story end there, we cheat ourselves of the significance of fully living into the calling that God has for us. Let me illustrate it this way. Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Galatia, who he was furious with. 
their sin or their struggle wasn't that they were sexually immoral or that they were um, having idol worship um, or that they were drunk at the communion table. That was the Corinthian church. And when he wrote to the Corinthian church, he greeted them with all kinds of love and affection. But he greets these Galatians. You know what their sin was? You know what he was fuming mad about? They were religious. They were religious. And they had taken the significance of Christ in us and taken out the simplicity of it and said, and religious rituals. What it was specifically about was circumcision. Oh, you can only be saved if you're circumcised. It's like saying, no, you can only be saved if you get baptized. Or you can only be saved if you get baptized in our church. You can only be saved if you get dedicated. I, I, I was talking to some of the parents before we had this, and I was like, I remember having this vivid conversation with a, a woman who... Her mother-in-law, who was devoutly Catholic, had, she had a seven-year-old son, and she's like, my mother-in-law is telling me that if she dies, I, he's going to hell because he hasn't been baptized. And I was like, oh my gosh, can, can, I just, can I just move us back to the centrality of Christ and in Christ alone? Paul, to the Galatian church, is livid. And listen to what he says. He writes to them to point out the point of the Christian life, which he says, my dear children, for whom I am in, again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul's singular desire is that we would become people who bear and express the life of Christ. Like a mother going through labor pains, I don't want you to just look like Christ. I want you to be the resurrected Christ. Paul's contention is you'd get over this legalism. You'd get over this arguing if you could just have Christ formed in you. I wanted at least seven rhythms so that people could know the heart of God but have Christ formed in us and one of the ways it's formed in us is when our faith becomes for the benefit of others but another way it's formed in us is when we can transfer our faith to another namely our children so he wants us to have this living faith and and Paul is adamant that's the gospel it's Christ formed in you and Mary is the prototype of this and, and for so long, I feel like I miss this. Now, let me give you a couple more examples. Paul writes to the Colossian church, and he says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and, gener and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. See, previously, they understood what it means to have God beside them, God with them, God, um, God in all of these circumstances, God among them, but they didn't understand God in them. This was a new revelation for the people of God. In Galatians 1.16, Paul's own testimony, he writes and he says, it pleased God to reveal his own son in and through me. And that's the point of it. Not just look like Jesus, but be the presence of Christ. In John 15, we read that you would abide in me. It's all about branches and vines, that you would abide in me. It's almost erotic kind of language. But the idea is that if we abide in Christ, we're not just acting like a Christian. We're not just talking like a Christian. We become the living presence of a resurrected Jesus. Maybe the best example I, I could give, and I, I thought about this um, all week long, but I remember in, in 19, um, 
94, my cousin had a 13-year-old son. She had a 15-year-old daughter and, and an 11-year-old uh, daughter, but their 13-year-old son came home from a basketball game, and he was complaining that his knee hurt him. And what that pain in his knee became is a three-year battle that he eventually lost to cancer. And he went through times of remission, and he went times of hopefulness like he had beat it. But imagine having a 13-year-old son coming home to be diagnosed with cancer. You as a parent feeling entirely hopeless, but they were people not without hope. Their faith never came into question. They were able to walk through with the pain of the possibility of losing their son with a hopefulness, not shaking their fist at God saying, why would this happen to me? Or how could you do this to us? They went through pain. They went through grief. But they never went through it without the hope that God was always a part of it. And so there's this picture that we have that I've seen in the most tangible ways of what it looks like to be the living presence of God. They went through a three-year gut-wrenching battle of continually seeking God, but not losing faith. Eventually, David, my then 16-year-old second cousin, was in his room on home care, breathing apparatus, asked for the pastor to come in and mom and dad. And in that moment, asked, imagine your 16-year-old son making this request, fighting for his breath, is it okay? Is it okay if I stop? And them, with this sort of blessed assurance, saying, David, it's okay. You can go home now. It's okay. And with the presence of family taking on off his mask and within the next minute going home to be with his heavenly father. We were 24 hours into a move to Tuscaloosa. We didn't get to be part of this experience, but I never stopped seeing a living faith. This wasn't a Sunday go to church faith. This wasn't a, a, a faith of circumstances as long as I'm getting my way, I'll believe in God. No, this was a devout faith. And what Mary does is Mary gets visited by this angel. And Mary, with this sort of excitement, says, everything you have said, may it come true with me. She's welcoming the stigma of being an unwed mother. She's welcoming the stigma of going, oh my gosh, ostracization. But this is the starting point. Every day that you know that Christ lives in you, and when you be believe Christ is in you, you also believe that every day you live with the hope and the power and the confidence of the resurrected Christ. Then you begin to live because of that reality, Christ in you. Not Christ plus perfect Sunday church attendance, Christ plus all the memory verses, Christ plus 10% tithing. No, 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 Christ in you. Fred and Janet, my cousin and her husband, had a living faith. 
when we came back that December. You know how I knew it was Christ in them? Because nothing out of their person came complaining or whining. There was no pity party. There was just this abiding confidence of Christ in them. You know what they wanted to do at Christmas? After spending the last three and a half years at the UCSF Children's Cancer Oncology Ward was revisit there. And so they grabbed the sisters and they grabbed the cousins and they said, David, Laurel, will you come? We didn't have kids at the time. I said, sure, I wouldn't miss this for the world. I didn't get to go to the funeral. And they wanted to revisit the cancer ward. And they brought gifts for the family there because they had been in that cancer ward. And they wanted to come and not bring the Winter Wonderland Christmas carols. They wanted to bring the Christ came Christmas carols. They wanted to come and, and declare good news as any good herald would do, proclaiming the birth of the Christ child, because that was their hope. And I remember standing out, we were just standing there holding hands and, and everyone's tearing up and said, okay, pull it together, we're going in. And these doors swing open and just passing out gifts and starting to sing. And there was family after family that's looking. They didn't know the story, but I started looking at the eyes of the nursing staff and the doctors weeping. Why? Because they knew Fred and Janet. They knew Mandy and Katie. They knew, they knew. They're like, what kind of family comes back at Christmas time? Aren't you still grieving? Aren't you just angry at God? Living faith, Christ in them. Not complaining, not shaking their fist. It was one of the beautiful examples of Christ in us. Not just Christ, I, I gotta act like a Christian. I gotta sound like a Christian. No, Christ in them. Let me hurry up. I, I just want to look at a couple more things. The second prototype is this prototype for hospitality, which we see in Elizabeth. It says in verse 39 that Elizabeth left in a hurry, uh, which is this kind of thing that, you know, again, in the familiarity of all these things, uh, we, we sometimes miss what happens. It says uh, uh, she, she comes into this picture and she says, at that time, Mary got ready and she hurried to the town uh, in the hill country of Judea where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. Um, and when, when he greeted her, th there was this leaping, like he knew that the Christ child had kind of belly to belly encounter. So we don't even have time to talk about that encounter. But we have Elizabeth, this pregnant woman who says, I'm going to make room and give shelter to someone who's in need. It says that she hurried there. And, and, and scholars would debate, did she hurry there because she was super joyful and excited to see Elizabeth? Or was she looking to get out of Dodge before her secret got out? To which I would say, doesn't matter who cares both. The point is that when you receive God's revelation, go with it. When you know God has opened a door, follow it. The temptation is when God calls us into obedience, when God shows us a next step, is to somehow wait for something a little bit more comfortable, something a little bit more safer. And when God says go, go because God's revelation, we only show up and that's when the faith kicks in, right? It's not like we can keep praying, oh God, is there any other way? Is there something else that can happen? She doesn't know the details, but being in God's story, she thinks is exciting. There's gratitude and we should be too, uh, no less grateful 
because we're no less chosen and we're no less cause. See, I think what happens a lot of the time is we get caught up in the concerns. Now, sometimes we have minor concerns like, oh my gosh, is my team going to be bowl eligible? Is my team going to actually make it to the football playoffs? Is, um, is my team going to be able to do what I want to do to be able to spend my New Year's correctly? Uh, there's all of these other minor concerns that we have, uh, but uh, there's also, you know, am I going to get Hamilton tickets? Am I going to, you know, what's deer season going to be like? But then there's other maybe more significant concerns like what's the economy going to do? Or what's the 2020 um, election going to be like? How am I ever going to pay for college? And while all of these concerns are on some level legitimate, none of these change the end of the story. Perfect justice. Wholeness healing, and God invites us to live into the trajectory of that story in the midst of our personal messes, in the midst of our personal concerns and problems. We are still called to be people of hope because God's story, hear me on this, is always exciting and always disruptive. I'll serve you more when I can raise my kids because when they get a little older, it won't be so time-consuming. Yeah, right. I'll serve you more. Mm -mm. You got got the prototypical example in Elizabeth. She's pregnant. She's got stuff to do. And she receives those who are marginalized. She makes room for someone who's who's vulnerable. And Mary, to her credit, she's just excited to be into God's story and willing to live with whatever comes her way. She got revelation, just took the next step. Um, uh, and, and here's, here's what I would just simply say uh, about this, is that um, there's this verse out of Hebrews 13. Most of you are probably familiar. 13 verse 2 says, um, and, and don't forget to practice hospitality because you may be entertaining angels. See, when you open your heart, when you open your home, when you open your calendar, when you open up your family When you do that, that's the hospitality that allows God to break into your life. And even as it shelters those on the run. And so be open to being Christ to others in the midst of those you serve. And when you do that, something profound happens. You'll be transformed in ways that you could have never imagined. Yesterday, I had the rare privilege of going to a Burmese wedding. I didn't know anything that was being talked about, but I got to be able to be seated on the second row. It was um, Jonathan and Grace's roommate, Van, who is the brother of that. Some of you have known both these men because they've translated for us. I didn't even know they were brothers. But I walked in, they asked Laurel to play for part of the, you know, piano at part of the ceremony, and we're just happy, and we start walking around and greeting people. And what I realized is as a family, we've just sort of opened up our doors to them as they've opened up their doors to us. Come on. I had no idea when we were talking about starting Mission Hills and living on mission what it would look like. But all of a sudden, I felt the favor of God's people. These were believers who've left everything, fled And they've just appreciated a few bags of groceries and they've appreciated kindness. They've appreciated Americans calling them by name. I got to wear a flower that the family wears to let everyone know 
who the family members are of the wedding party. And, and I got pinned. I mean, it kind of kind of made me bow up, not in pride, but feeling like I was privileged. I, this stuff is transformational. It just resensitizes our hearts. And all I'm saying is like Elizabeth, just open yourself up and see what God does when you allow the hospitality of God to just penetrate your own hearts. It's the, it's the deep end of goodness. Lastly, Zechariah. This is what's probably most scary for me. Zechariah is a priest. And one day he walks in to do the temple duties. And he goes into the Holy of Holies. And if you know the Holy of Holies, only one could go in there. And they tie a rope around his ankle because if for some reason there's sin in his life or, or he has a heart attack, no one can go in to get him. So they tie a rope around his legs because if he falls over, they've got to drag him out. No EMT can go in there. He goes in there and he's taking forever because he's greeted by an angel. And there's incense burning and it's just crazy like quiet time from the Lord. And he has this revelation about this. And he's like, you're going to have a son. And he's like, how can I have a son? And he's like, I'm old and Elizabeth's older than me and she's barren. And did I mention we're old and infertile? And he's like, give me a sign. Okay. If an angel of the Lord shows up and you're asking for a sign, there's problems. There's problems here. And he says, I'll give you a sign. You know what your sign's going to be? You're mute. Holy cow. You know what that meant? The loss of praise. Let us know that our praise to God is a privilege. Our praise to God connects us. Our praise to God shouldn't be hands in pockets, sort of like we just go through this till we get to hear the preaching. The gift of praise. He was going to have his first child, and he got cursed with being mute. Oh, I'll give you a sign. You will not even be able to speak. So he walks out, and everyone knew that he had been with God because this guy couldn't even talk let alone tell people about the imminent birth of what would become John the Baptist. All I wanted was a child. You give me the forerunner of Jesus Christ who's going to bring the nation back to him. And I can't tell one blessed soul. He says, you're going to name him John. And then they're like, you know, when it came time to name the baby, he's like scribbling it out. Name him John. And they're like, you can't name him John. No one in your family is named John. John! You can just see him emphatically pounding on some scribble pad. John it is. <gasps> and then he could speak. The privilege of praise. The privilege came back to him. Now here's where it gets really personal. Zechariah becomes the prototype of someone who knows the word of God, but doesn't believe it. Come on. You're a priest. You are fluent in the Old Testament. You know the story of Abraham and Sarah. You know the story of being barren and being too old to have kids. You know the story that they were just an old couple. You know all that. You teach all that. And you don't even believe that. That's history. That's someone else's story. No, 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 no. That's what God's invited us into. And so what I get really worried about is being one of these religious people. When push comes to shove, I know what the word of God says. I know the faithfulness of God in my family's life, in my immigrant family's life, in my life. And when the circumstances get too overwhelming, do I actually believe that God provides, cares, sees, comforts, 
Come on now. This is some stuff, right? Holy cow, I got to stop. I could keep going. Like Christmas, Christmas got a lot more real to me when I started thinking about Mary as this prototype for Christ in us and Elizabeth as this prototype for what hospitality looks like for those on the fringes. And then hospitality, or, you know, being a Zachariah, a prototype for someone who knows, raised in the church, but struggles to believe daily. Transformation occurs when he writes it down, John. And if God says it, we can bank on it. And if Christ lives in me, I know it even when I don't feel it. It's true whether I believe it or not. It's like saying, oh, you know, I'll, uh, I believe I can have peace when I have peace. That's, you know, that's not faith. I believe I can overcome addiction when I overcome addiction. Yeah, but not faith. I believe I can stop complaining or accusing or, or blaming when I stop accusing, bl- blaming. No, it's not faith. I believe I can have rest <laughs> when I have rest. Mm. It's not faith. God invites us to take these next steps with what we already know is true. And it always starts with belief. And the experience comes on the far end of that. Um, And because God has spoken, there's many people that have chosen a path simply by faith. And I was being reminded as I was thinking about this, there's many people that have chosen a path of of nonviolence. And in the end, they'll win. Um, there's many people that have said, you know what, human trafficking is wrong. And I'm reminded of Rachel Goebel, who was just a high school intern at my last church uh, in California. And, and she, she went out and started this thing called the Soul Project and moved to Thailand and started this whole thing on human trafficking and working on this whole um, deliverance project. And now it's called the Freedom Story for all of these women coming out of human trafficking because she said, that ain't right. And for her, the next step was, and she's stateside, but she started the Freedom Story. I think about my other friend, Roy, and Roy, um, in the 80s, started a Christian uh, response to environmentalism by an organization called Target Earth International. He happened to be a real estate agent and, um, and yet a card-carrying member of the Sierra Club, uh, but he bought 1,900 acres of rainforest uh, in Belize and created the world's first, like, most eco-friendly um, compound uh, that you could get college credit and study overseas but 20, 20 years later he bought it back because he started another nonprofit called Pathlight International that's helping um, the most vulnerable through education because he said these, these people are getting exploited because they don't have an education so some, someone should do something there's people who have chosen just to bless and serve on the margins and by faith it's it's to offer a dignified wage. My friend Nathan George or my friend Troy Stringfield, they looked at people who were being exploited and they said, I just want them to earn a dignified wage. And so they created opportunities for gainful employment in developing nations. It's, it's our friend Cora Shinneberry who says, you know what, teen moms have got it rough. They should at least be able to get their education or maybe even a high school diploma before they just automatically drop out. So she runs a state and federally funded program at Del Valley High School because do that. It's, it's our own Jess Archer who says, I can teach or I could go teach immigrants. 
uh, how to speak English and maybe have a leg up in our, in our country. It's, it's saying yes, right? Uh, it's being excited about being in God's story, even though it doesn't always feel lucrative or it doesn't always feel um, like you get uh, as many margins as you'd like. It's, it's foster families, right? It's coming alongside. Foster care is super hard, but it's Julie Corey starting an organization called Fostering Hope uh, Austin. And um, it's people who are willing to say, God's story is exciting and it's disruptive. God's story is compelling and it's, and it's inconvenient. But be clear on this. We are called to have and form Christ in us. And when that's true, we we operate with the resurrected power. We we can operate with hope and power and confidence, not not our own. Let me pray for us as as we close our time together. God, I I know that Mary said yes to this disruption, and I know that there's so much uncertainty financially. We look at government corruption, we, we think about stale marriages, and we think about sexual identity, and we think about scandal, scandal after scandal. We think about lost neighbors in our own town. And may we say, um, here we are, and allow this disruption to transform us into being people of hope, people of mercy, people of light and love. Uh, may we be inconvenienced with the reality that you reside in us. May our lives, may the testimony of our church and our extended family of faith be Christ in us so that you can be glorified through us. Uh, May we settle nothing short of that, your gospel message. Help us to own that as as our mantra and and as our salvation. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. I want to invite you to stand right now as we close in our time of worship and prayer. I don't want this to just be singing out. Let us not forget the the reminder of the privilege of bringing our blessing and praise unto God. Uh, But you make this a time as you reflect on these words of of devotion, of prayer. And if there is something, a word, a a, a phrase, um, maybe a face, pray through that before you leave tonight. And if you'd like someone to pray with, I'd love to pray with you, but uh, we're just going to have a couple of songs to reflect and respond in worship tonight.